After graduating from UC San Diego with his MFA in playwriting, Alex Lewin reluctantly moved to New York for a magazine job. But playwriting did not take a back seat. Alex's plays have been presented at the O'Neill Playwrights Conference, the New York Theatre Workshop, where he's an artistic associate, and has been commissioned by the La Jolla Playhouse, among others. Most recently, Alex's play The Interview was presented as part of the MCC Play Lab series. We'll talk to Alex about experimenting with play structure, if a play is ever really done, and how his work with the New York Theatre Workshop is helping close the gap between the old and the young through theatre, as Alex Lewin joins us right now on the Scripts and Scribes podcast. joined by playwright Alex Lewin. Hey, Alex. Hi, Karina. How are you? Uh, very good, thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Um, so we'll just start right at the beginning. Um, tell me about what drew you to playwriting and getting your degree in playwriting rather than any other genre of writing. Well, as an undergraduate at Carnegie Mellon, I actually focused on, well, I got my degree in creative writing and professional writing, and uh, because Carnegie Mellon can't do anything like the rest of the world does things, uh, professional writing basically meant journalism, and um, my focus in creative writing was on screenwriting and uh, fiction writing, and so I have studied other, and, and then I was, there wasn't a lot of for undergrads, there were a couple of playwriting classes taught by an adjunct professor who's still a friend of mine named Bill Kabasek, who was wonderful. But there wasn't nearly as rigorous a playwriting sort of track at Carnegie Mellon as there was for fiction and screenwriting and poetry. Um, and I think what ended up leading me towards pursuing a graduate degree in screenwriting was that uh, – excuse me, a graduate degree in playwriting. Yeah. <laughs> Freudian slip, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, all throughout all that time, uh, I was sort of getting more pleasure from, from playwriting, and uh, it's where I feel like my, my real – it occurred to me at some point that I could go my whole life without publishing a short story. I could go my whole life without making a film, but I don't think I can go my whole life without making theater. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And that's what that's when I kind of that was around the time I really started to look seriously at graduate programs and and sort of uh, get the lay of the of the land as far as professional theater goes as far as, far as New York theater goes. Um, I knew almost nothing about it, and I was I sort of after college I worked as a magazine writer. I was really kind of on a journalism on a magazine writing track, and uh, uh, so I sort of made a career change. Anyway, that's sort of what led me to playwriting. Um, and did you feel that you had to go to New York to pursue playwriting? Because um, I know L.A. has some, you know, theaters, and, and it does have a theater-going audience, but, I mean, New York is, you know, the place for theater. Um, was that kind of part of becoming well, a playwright, moving to New York, that whole thing? If, uh, it, no, not particularly. I'm, I did not want to move to New York. Um, I moved here right after college for a job, for a magazine job. And 
I grew up partly in Bergen County, New Jersey, and partly in Los Angeles. Uh, but to me, New York City, growing up in, in New Jersey, New York City was this big, scary place across the river where people got murdered. <laughs> um, you know, it was the 80s. And um, so the idea of – and that's why I had really never done any real time in the city. And the idea of actually living here kind of scared the hell out of me. But I really wanted this magazine job. And what ended up happening was, um, as happens to a lot of people, I really fell in love with New York and I think as my as I started to veer towards getting serious about being a playwright, it, it I I was here. There was everything tied up with discovering my own voice as a writer is tied up with with being in New York. So it wasn't as if I decided I wanted to be a playwright. Oh, I need to be in New York. And I I think um, uh, for playwrights, there are playwrights who thrive. Uh, in Chicago and in L.A. and in Minneapolis and in uh, Austin and in lots of other places. So um, that was sort of how New York came to be part of my world. Right. I, and I agree. I think you you can be a great playwright anywhere, but New York does have all of that great stuff right there for you. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about that one, I guess, your big break, so to speak, that kind of solidify that, yes, you can be a playwright, and, and you know, it, it just kind of took off from there. Like, you're, you know, how you started becoming a professional playwright rather than a student playwright, you know? Yeah, 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 I do. I, 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 um, I'm just having to recalibrate my definition of big break. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, or, or but, you know, just that one step in. No, no, I know, I know what you mean. And, and I think for me that was uh, in my second year of grad school, it's a, the UCSD program is a three-year program, and in my second year, I wrote a play called The Near East, and I think that that um, was the play that uh, put me on whatever map I can safely say I'm on. Um, but that was a play that got me an agent. That was a play that, that uh, uh, it just it was a play that just got me a lot of attention, and I, I think uh, opened opened a lot of doors that that. Uh, were previously not open for me or even doors I didn't know were there. One of the ways that happened was um, the at UC San Diego every spring, they produce the, the, uh, a new play festival where, it, which is a really wonderful sort of creative experience where uh, all of, all of the graduate playwrights have a play produced those plays are directed by the graduate directing students. They're designed by the graduate design students. They're stage managed by the graduate stage managers. And um, and some of the La Jolla Playhouse uh, staff uh, work on these plays, and they're staged in spaces that the La Jolla Playhouse and UC San Diego share. La Jolla Playhouse and UCSD are right across the street from each other. And uh, one of the things that happens is that bigwigs from uh, the theater universe from around from the theater business around the country fly out are flown out and get to see all these plays and meet all the writers and meet all the directors and um so that was kind of how i got exposure to some people uh to some impressive people <laughs> and they, yeah. they like play so that was sort of that was sort of how that happened that's really a great program they have there to to allow the students to kind of get out there it, it is a great program yeah it's, uh it, it really something yeah they're really good 
Awesome. Well, when I was in New York, I was lucky to come and see a reading of your new play, The Interview, um, Mm -hmm. with the MCC Theater. And um, you're part of their Playwrights Coalition, right? That's right. Awesome. And they have that Play Play Lab series, which you were a part of. Can you tell me a little bit about getting involved with MCC and then a little bit about the play that they just had the reading for? Sure. Well, I had no connection at all to MCC, and they I, somehow or another – oh, well, I, I guess my agent at the time must have sent them my – Play. I don't really know. Anyway, one day I get a call from, or I get an email from the literary manager at MTC, a guy named Stephen Willems, and he says, uh, we read your play, The Further Adventures of Susanna Monica, which was my thesis play at UCSD. That was the play I wrote in my third year. And um, they really liked it. So they called me in for a meeting, and they told me a little bit about what the Playwrights Coalition is about, uh, na- namely a group of a about 20, 25 playwrights whose work they like, whose careers they want to support, uh, playwrights they want to sort of offer some of their developmental resources to. And they asked me if I wanted to join, and I said, absolutely. Um, and right, I think right around that time, this was in 2009, that was when they started doing their Play Lab series, which is a series of, I think, three or four readings of plays that happen on Monday nights uh, in, in the spring every year. I've done it a few times now. And uh, basically what they do is uh, in at some point, maybe in December or January, they send an email to all the uh, Playwrights Coalition members, and they say, hey, do you guys want to have uh, – want any of your plays to be considered for the Play Lab series? And I keep saying yes, and uh, I keep being fortunate enough for them to say, okay, we like we – like, in this case, the interview, let's do it. So – and then what happens is um, the – we sort of talk about, we find the director, we find actors, and there is just three hours of rehearsal on the afternoon of the reading, and then we, you know, they do it that night. So it's very, um, it's fun because it's very kind of uh, quick and dirty. Yeah. And do you do you um, actually have a say in the, the casting, or is that just kind of done by the director? Oh no, I I very much have a say in the casting, and for that matter, in who is gonna who is gonna direct it, and that's a that's a conversation that we we kind of have once we've zeroed in on a director, then that director and I and and Stephen, literary manager at MCC, we'll all kind of have. But yes, I'm very much a part of that. And then just just tell me a little bit about the the play, the interview. Sure, the interview is a uh, to use the, the the movie term, it's a long take. It's a one scene play it's a full-length play but it's a it's one scene and it unfolds in real time and it all takes place in one room and with only two characters and the situation is a young uh, aspiring filmmaker is trying to volunteer to be uh, a big brother as in big brothers big sisters mm-hmm. and one of the many hoops you have to jump through when you do that is um, and it's good that there are a lot of hoops. There should be. <laughs> um, of course, yeah. Uh, is uh, you are interviewed by uh, one of the uh, case managers who works for the organization. It's kind of a, a standard screening interview. And the questions they ask, as I discovered when I did this myself, um, are very, very personal and probing. 
And even I was, and I knew they were going to be, uh, but even I was surprised, <clears throat> excuse me, even I was surprised in going through this experience, some of the questions that were, that were put to me. So anyway, um, uh, that's what is happening in the play. The uh, older, the other character is the social worker who is about 50, 55 or 60, so a lifelong New Yorker who uh, has a kind of sense that something about this young man, Jake is the character's name, uh, might not be quite right. She's trying to figure out whether he is, um, whether he should be a big brother or not. And part of that means, is he okay to be around a minor, you know, alone? Um, in my own experience of doing this, I should wait to quickly tell your listeners that uh, there, I passed. There was no, I didn't raise any <laughs> flags. No, I became a big brother, and uh, and there was there was no trouble. But I did begin. I came away from that experience of that that interview, that two hour interview, by the way. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah, kind of saying to myself, what if I, what if what would that situation be like if the candidate, the guy being interviewed, were not so. Uh, clean, uh, not not so squeaky clean, not so uh, clearly safe, and and what kind of dramatic situation would that um, lead to? So that's sort of what the play is and and where it came from. The reading you saw, Karina, was uh, the first time I've heard it in front of an audience, and the big question for me was, can this real time you know, this one scene, two character, real time play work, can it hold an audience's interest? So I was trying to watch the audience more than I was watching the play, to tell you the truth. To tell you, I loved it. I, I was engaged the whole time. Um, and I was going to ask you, like, when you're writing it, do you, are you very aware of, of that? And because it's, it is just one scene, there's nothing to kind of break it. Um, how does, how do you, go about writing it and try to have levels and changes happen, um, even though yeah. they're so static, you know, just sitting, you know, side by side. Right. Well, in the first draft, I didn't, actually. Um, <laughs> and I, cause, and I, I learned exactly what you're talking about. Uh, in the first draft, there was a, a third character and a, a sort of a flashback scene that, came in in the middle of the play, and when I showed it to some people, they said to me, um, either more of that character and that storyline or none at all. And I thought, at that point, I had to make a choice where I thought that part of the point, part of the dramatic situation is the crucible. Part of it is this pressure cooker. And if I can get the audience to even be kind of exhausted from being in this room, <laughs> um, then that is, that's part of what motivated me to even examine the dramatic situation to begin with. So it suddenly dawned on me, oh, no, breaking away from this room um, is actually uh, hobbling the play a little bit. Uh, so that was – I kind of made the decision to go back in and then, and then just do it, do the scene, do the whole play as an unbroken scene. It is, it is difficult to keep the suspense up. I think I, I've been thinking a lot lately about suspense as, as sort of the basic strategy of, of, of storytelling. I, and I don't necessarily mean suspense in an Alfred Hitchcock way, but just, mm -hmm. you know, making sure 
you making the audience want to know what happens next and making sure that you're not giving them anything that they haven't asked for or wondered about. So that's kind of the challenge with any play, but especially especially with a play like that. And it, and it definitely worked. I feel like it was almost like watching a mouse squirm away from a snake. Or, you know, like he kept getting trapped in his own answers, and it, it was very engaging. Um, oh, so I'm well glad. done. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, um, part of the way it works, by the way, also I think is, um, and part of the part of the way that what you just described is happening is because at, at some point it's going to dawn on the audience that the uh, Sheila, the interviewer, knows more about Jake than we would assume, or or that Jake assumes. And I think part, hopefully, part of what's keeping us engaged is discovering what that is and why and how. And it's just that secret that is slowly coming out, which I think you feel it uh-huh. really adds that extra suspense that you were talking about. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That character's keeping something very big inside. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, since that was the first reading, tell me, what is it like to, for the first time, have an actor, you know, bring your words to life? Like, that must be a very big moment in, in the writing process. Yeah, well, I uh, was fortunate that we got those two actors, in that particular reading, those two actors, Charlie Socarides and Betsy Adam, uh, who, it's 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 a very wordy play, and... Um, in a good way in a good way (laughs) yeah yeah no right and they not all not all actors are good at that or or are comfortable with with working with all those words especially on the fly especially with like just three hours of rehearsal and they were um they were great so it's a little bit i mean one of a lot a lot happens when i'm sitting there watching them work (laughs) um it's a question of you know, I'm, I mean, I'm doing things, I'm listening to a lot of different things at once. I'm listening to whether the jokes are landing. Right. Um, I'm listening to things that actually, that uh, uh, jokes that I didn't know were there or, th- or moments that are going to get a laugh that I didn't know were there and what that's about. And um, I'm listening very closely for when uh, I tend to write basically realistic dialogue. I tend to write the way people talk, except not quite. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I, sort of, I sort of believe that if you really listen to people talk, they're actually quite a bit more eloquent than, than we assume or than we think of when we think of, quote, unquote, natural speech. And I like to sort of write characters who might stumble over their words for a couple of clauses and then suddenly say, and they have to do that in order to get to the point where they're, saying something kind of accidentally beautiful or lyrical um, in, a, in an extemporaneous kind of way. So that's one of the things that I'm always listening for in that type of situation. How, when we do stumble into lyricism, uh, is, it, is it working? Are we going to buy it? Or conversely, am I missing an opportunity to really say something beautiful or say something in a beautiful way um, that I haven't taken? So those are some of the things that are going on in my head when I'm in that, that type of situation. And um, do you always hold a reading for your plays, or has it ever not been the occasion? Oh, well, each play kind of comes, comes finds life in a different way. I, 
you know, I have a, I belong to a writer's group. We meet in my living room every other week and, um, um, you know, we're always, we will sit and read each other's pages aloud. And in fact, I think a couple of times we had read a couple of different drafts of the interview. Um, and so that's one way in which I learn about a play. Um, although I didn't do it in this particular instance, I really have come to like, whenever I have a first reading of a play, I'll just, uh, invite a few people. Um, it's very, very unusual for me to, uh, put a play so young in a situation like the one you saw it in. That is to say, it's really only the second draft of that play, and it's unusual for me to, you know, uh, unleash it on the public, so to speak, <laughs> um, because that was a public reading. Anybody could come. And um, what I've been usually doing lately is uh, in only inviting people who know me and who are sort of invested in my work and my success and directing the reading myself when it's a first when it's a first reading of a of an early of a first draft or a second draft um and that's the only directing i ever want to do ever <laughs> <laughs> really don't like doing it um uh but in but when it's a first reading of a, of a young play I've, i always find always find that when i'm working with a director in that type of situation they're deferring to me constantly anyway because, uh, the, you know, the head, the head is, is soft. Uh, it's a very fragile, delicate thing, and everybody's afraid of um, doing any damage to it. So it's, it's always, in that early reading-type situation, everyone is always deferring to the playwright anyway. And so at some point I said to myself, well, why don't I just direct these things myself? So that's usually what I do when I'm hearing a play for the first time with, with any kind of an audience. It wasn't what happened with the reading you saw, but that's what I've come to really like doing lately. Um, and so what's next for the interview? Are you continuing to revise it or kind of solidifying it now? I don't – well, I don't know what's next for it in terms of development uh, opportunities. I, we, it's kind of out there in the world, and we're waiting to see if uh, if anybody wants to do anything with it. Um, I I have a couple things – that I want to look at in the play that, that kind of came up for me in that reading you saw. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, actually, I think I think I even tweaked a, a, a couple of things after that reading. Um, but I'm really I feel like I'm in a position uh, at the moment where I don't know, like I don't particularly have a plan for revising it, which is not to say I think it's finished and perfect, but I feel like I need to get into a into a, a room with actors again. Um, and now that I'm in a place where I can trust that the experiment will work, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that an audience will go on this particular ride. Now I can relax and really think about the meat of the play it, itself. So, but I, at the moment I'm not, I don't have plans or I'm not in a position to, uh, uh, to do that yet. Yeah, hopefully something will come along. I hope so. I, I would love to see it again. Um, and I was just, you brought it up uh that you know you don't think it's perfect or or done um is is your work ever done i mean i know (laughs) (laughs) you know if i've written something i'm always going back to it i'm like oh i could tweak that or i could change that it's never quite finished you just have to stop at some point do you have that same feeling absolutely absolutely what you what what you have to be careful about is is 
what one has to, I don't mean you, Karina, I mean, what one has to be careful about is uh, letting that awareness be then kind of an excuse to set it aside. Um, and, or, um, or even despairing, you know, it's, it's sometimes easy to go to the place of, well, a play is never finished, um, so why should I try finishing it, you know? <laughs> um, but that's not a very good, a very useful line of, of thought. So, um, but I absolutely feel that way. Uh, I can't, somebody, somebody famous said that plays are never finished, they're only abandoned. And I think that that's probably true. But the, the question for me is, am I really fully saying what, is the play really fully articulating something? Is it really following through on an idea? Um, is it really a, a whole elaboration? And when I can answer yes to that, or when I think the answer to that is yes, mm -hmm. that's when I'm okay sort of letting go of, of something, even if jokes could be punched up, you know, even if beats could be made clearer. Um, I, you can all, you can you can tinker till the end of time, right? right? So, but but the question for me is uh, something is as close to finished as as I'm able to make it when I think it really is a total elaboration and articulation of of, of the idea of the, the the purpose of writing the play. And I don't, I'm not totally convinced that the interview is at that point yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I don't know specifically what that means for, for how the play will change or evolve, but I just sort of have that feeling that it's not quite there yet. So. Well, I'll definitely be interested to see where it goes from here. So will I. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to switch gears here for just a second. Um, you actually teach writing um, with the New York Theater Workshop, mm -hmm. right, with that's the Mind the Gap program. That's right, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I, I found it really interesting. Yeah, well, um, Mind the Gap started uh, three years ago. Spring of 2009, I think, was when we did it the first time. It is a it's an intergenerational theater-making workshop. I'm trying to get a little bit away from the language around playwriting um, because it's, I think some people who – hear about it, come to it thinking it's going to be a playwriting class, and that's not really what it's for. Um, what it is for is we bring together people uh, of two different generations, teenagers and people over the age of 60. And I think our oldest participant so far was 93, or celebrated her 93rd birthday while she was working with us. That's and fantastic that she's still out there. <laughs> she, was, she was a powerhouse. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I was really impressed with her. And and uh, I've encountered a lot of very impressive people, old and young, in, in doing this program. And what they do is they spend a lot of time interviewing each other. And this is a process that we sort of guide them through, and we sort of give them some techniques for how to how to interview someone, how to conduct a, you know, a good interview. And uh, ultimately, and, and they sort of do – a few different exercises along the way. So at first, we'll just we'll pull a name out of a hat. Um, Karina, you're uh, 15 years old. Go into the corner of the room with this guy, Alex, who's 75 years old, and interview each other for you know half an hour in each direction. And then 
what you'll do, your homework assignment might be, then be something like go home and write uh, a monologue in Alex's voice. And uh, and my homework would be the same, to go home and write a monologue in, in your voice, or to go home and write a scene from your life that you told me about. So, uh, and so we do have kind of a few, a few different variations on that. And then ultimately, everyone gets quote-unquote permanent partners. And that's when uh, a younger person, an older person, will actually spend a couple of sessions interviewing each other, um, a, f- a few hours interviewing each other. And their, their final project uh, ha- is usually, and this kind of varies depending on from session to session, but generally the final project is to write a 10 to 15 minute play that is in some way about your partner, inspired by your partner, it's about their world. And, and then, then what we do is we bring in professional actors to read these plays. So, which is, which is a really interesting educational experience. What you, what's happening then is not only are you, Karina, hearing your, the words that you wrote read out loud by actors and perhaps for the first time because, you know, we're not looking for playwriting. We're not even really looking for theater type people <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to come to this program. We're looking for people who, who we kind of lean towards people who are not studying theater or who have not done a lot of theater. So you're sitting there, you and I have been, have been partners and you're hearing your play that you've written about me <laughs> read out loud by these actors while I am also discovering what it is you created that about me. And then vice versa, we're going to hear my play that I've written that is about you. So as you can imagine, this is a pretty eye-opening experience for a lot of people. And the idea behind it is theater making as a way of kind of facilitating communication or understanding between two groups of people who in our society don't have a lot of chance to communicate or understand each other Unless there's a, an authority dynamic or a power dynamic. You know, people this young don't really interact with people this old, except as teachers and, and, and grandparents um, or somebody in the role of authority. And one of the first things that we try to establish in Mind the Gap, once we have everybody in the room, is that everybody in the room um, is, for our, our purposes, our peers. And nobody has any more power or, for that matter, wisdom than anybody else. So that's what that project is about. And it it's something that we that happens at New York Theater Workshop. The, the education department there makes it happen, um, and it's grown and expanded and gotten more funding. And uh, over the last few years, and we've been able to take it out of New York Theater Workshop actually to sort of take the the model that I just uh, described to you and go to partner with other community organizations go into their populations and say, hey, do you guys want to do this this mind the gap thing that we do? And uh, and so it's been, we've been able to bring it to more and more people. And it's been really a, a kind of a big part of my working life the last few years. And it's been a pleasure. It, it sounds fantastic. And, and I'm sure you get to see people really grow and, and open up um, through this project. I, I think it would be amazing. Interestingly, you see you see people grow and open up, and sometimes you see people actually shrink back into themselves. Really? Uh, sometimes, and because um, uh, it's it's scary. And and in fact, I must tell you that in my role as 
instructor, I, I only one time have I actually subjected myself to, <laughs> to the process. And uh, we do an exercise where a person tells a, a, a story, something that happened to them, that they tell it to the whole room. And then two or three people in that room volunteer to get up and act out the story they just heard. And then that, the, the storyteller then gets to be kind of quote unquote director. So they'll, they'll watch these other two participants kind of improvise the scene from, from their life. And then they'll go in and say, okay, wait a minute. This is actually how this happened. This is how this happened. Here's some more information you need to know about the situation. Do it again. And this is one way in which we kind of generate material, and it's really cool, but, but I once subjected myself to it as my way of demonstrating how it works, and it, I really had a deeper appreciation for the alchemy that we're playing with in this process. Uh, suddenly this scene from my past, which was not a particularly painful scene, and in fact I shared it because I thought it was amusing and relatively light, but still history was in the room with me all of a sudden. And that was, that's some real magic, but uh, that's also, I found it a little harrowing. Yeah, to see your life played out before you by yeah. other people. I, I, can, I can see where that would get a little scary. It can, and and it also gave me a deeper appreciation for the people who have come to us and worked with us, how much they have, have not been afraid of that, actually, how much they've <laughs> given of themselves and, and opened themselves up to that process. I, I really have kind of new respect for, for the people who participated in, my, in Mind the Gap. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Um, so one last question. Yeah. Any advice that you may be able to give to new and aspiring playwrights out there who are just starting out and maybe don't really know where to go? Well, if I, yeah, my advice is wherever you are, uh, to see as much theater as possible and don't, uh, don't accept that just because the, you know, the paper raved about it or everyone you know really likes it, that it must therefore be good. Uh, <laughs> don't accept that because it's got a lot of accolades, it must therefore be good because you'll stop listening to yourself if you let that happen or, or vice versa, you know. I mean, this is true with any art, but I, I do feel like um, when people are uncertain about how to proceed, they start to uh, – it becomes then very easy to doubt yourself and your own taste. And, and starting out should be an opportunity actually to learn about your own taste and what you sort of believe. So, uh, you know, these are things that I would like to say to a younger version of myself, basically. <laughs> right. No, for sure. <laughs> and, I mean, the other, the other thing that I've, that I've been – that I like to say, it, something that comes up in Mind the Gap a lot, actually, and that I think applies to much more generally to any artist, really, not just a theater artist, but I'm sort of become a believer that, you know, I think when young, when we're young and we express artistic aptitude or, or, or talent or interest, um, we sort of get patted on the back and kind of encouraged in this very gentle way it's very nice, but uh, um, but we we hear a lot of oh look look how talented you are look how oh, that's great oh draw a picture of yourself oh that's 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 beautiful you're so talented a lot of kind of blanket positive knee jerk positive reinforcement now I'm not saying that we should all take our kids and have like critical discussion <laughs> back sessions with them 
Um, but I think at some point we learn that uh, a lot of us get it into our heads that our job as artists is kind of to express ourselves. And um, I believe that self-expression is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. Or to put it another way, art is not about you. Art is about all of us. And art is not just about who you are and what you feel. Art is about what you see. Because you see stuff differently, or you see stuff that other people don't see. <laughs> That's why you're leaning towards being an artist. Um, so those are, those are a couple of things that have been on my mind lately that, that I think it took me a while to really get. And, and I think it's important to share that with the younger generation and, uh, and yeah, not give everybody a trophy for participating. <laughs> well, right, because then it, t it actually kind of uh, – you take it uh, – you then, you then get into a mode of, oh, look what I can do. You, the artist, I mean. You get into a look what I can do mode, um, which is another way of saying, you know, please love me. And um, I really think that the artists who have really been successful um, as artists are the ones who kind of got away from trying to from look what I can do, and, and they, just, they just did. They just do. <laughs> and they're not trying to impress anybody. I mean, maybe they are. I mean, we're all kind of crazy, and we all want to be loved <laughs> by everybody all the time. But um, certainly in my experience, when I've been exposed to artists or when I myself have just been in that mode of just doing it, um, rigorously doing it, that's different from look what I can do. And it's usually better. Right. <laughs> help no, here. I agree. Okay. So we're kind of coming down towards the end. And we have a little like, quick fire question and answer, just five quick questions. And cool. just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. okay, it's real quick and just for fun. Um, Mac or PC? Mac. If you could go back in time and witness one historical event, what would it be? Um, um, hmm. The, uh, hmm, let me not bullshit you. <laughs> okay. What a great question. So much history. There is, but you can only pick one. Only one. I'm going to say uh, if I could witness the Lincoln-Douglas debates, very, that would be it. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, your favorite play? Uh, my, my favorite American play is Long Day's Journey Into Night. My favorite play ever in the history of the world is mm. Julius Caesar. Ah. Favorite reality show? Um, well, I've been known to watch Big Brother. <laughs> It's hard to call it my favorite because it's not exactly something I – well, all right. You know what? Big Brother. Okay. <laughs> and finally, Montague or Capulet? Oh, Capulet. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, if you have, like, a website that um, we can, you know, share with our listeners uh, that they can come and see what you're doing – uh, you know, I don't have my own website, but uh, I, one of the other my, – in my secret life, I uh, co-author a blog, um, a movie review blog uh, called They'll Love It in Pomona. And okay. Loveitinpomona.wordpress.com, and uh, the title comes from a line from Sunset Boulevard. And my friend Aaron and I go back and forth on, 
on movies. Um, we just we just recently took some delight in tearing apart Prometheus. So uh, anyway, that's, awesome. That's uh, that's one of the other things I do, but that's that's pretty much the extent of my web presence. Okay, great. Thank you so much for doing this. And oh, thank, thank you, Karina. It was a pleasure. Oh, good. And for more great interviews, please check out our website, scriptsandscribes.com. And if you have a question about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email at ask at scriptsandscribes.com or tweet us at at scriptscribes. No and in between there, at scriptscribes. Thank you. Bye.